0: You may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with everyone here. I hope you had a wonderful week. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing on in Proverbs chapter 5. Recall, last time we were talking about being faithful to one's spouse. That was the wisdom that we really learned from Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5. It was wisdom that was expressed to a younger son that he should stay far away from the adulteress and remain faithful to the wife of his youth. If I were to summarize the positive verse in this section, it is to be faithful to the the wife of your youth. To remain faithful to her is the wisdom that we should have. And so what I want to do is finish here Proverbs 5 and then start to go into the New Testament to talk about the significance of being faithful uh, in our physical relations with our wives and our spouses all the days of our life. So let's finish here in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 20-23. through 23. We already did hit this, but let's do a little review. Notice here Solomon wrote again, "...for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked... And he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Now, dear ones, notice here again in verse 21, what you see in red, it says, the ways of a man are always before the eyes of the Lord. And we mentioned last time that this really connects us to Proverbs 1, 7, where we see the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Remember, the rest of that verse says that the fool despises wisdom so true knowledge and wisdom comes from fearing the Lord why because you know you're going to answer ultimately to him and therefore all the deeds of your life whether they're seen or unseen by the world you know that God knows them and so that's something obviously only the believer holds dear in their heart therefore they live to please him And this is why believers are those who, even when no one looks, we, by God's grace, do the right thing because we know that there's a heavenly Father who sees even what's done in secret. And that's the idea that's being conveyed here. And if you recall last time I cited how those who are not believers, they end up being captured by their iniquity. And I had mentioned we read from Romans chapter 1, verse 24, where it says that God gave them over to the lusts of their heart for impurity, when people continuously sin and live in idolatry and they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator, Romans 1 says that God hands them over to the lusts of their heart. And that's what we're going to see in spades in the 70th week of Daniel. In the last seven years, God hands the world over to the lust of their heart, to the point where they rebuild Babylon. Babylon is really the prototypical city of the rebels of God. And it's going to be built again. Why? Because there will be a lack of restraint in the world as God gives people over to their most degraded desires. And we'll talk about that at the end of this message here today. But I want to focus right now on this term capture. We didn't get to really focus on it. The term capture, lachad, in Hebrew, if you were to transliterate that, It's L-A-C-H-A-D, and it literally means, just as it says, to be captured by force or to be captured and to be made a slave. And I think the implication here is that those who give themselves over to both idolatry and sexual impurity, they end up being slaves of that sin. And many of you see that today in our culture, where you'll have whole months that are dedicated to pride of uh, the LGBTQ community, they take great pride in rebelling against God. Um, somebody pointed out very astutely, the veteran gets one day in on America, Veterans Day, but the LGBTQ crowd that's rebelling against God, they get a whole month. And that's the sign of the wayward nature of your culture that you're living in. But that's the way it is, and the point being is... People will in fact be ensnared and be made slaves of what they give themselves over to. And that's what we want to be on guard against. That's exactly the wisdom that the writer of Proverbs wants to convey to his son. If you start down that road of iniquity, you could be captured by it. And again, true believers never are. But the idea is, if you're not a true believer... Again, none of us have an E written in our forehead for E lacked. We don't always know. And the point is, if a person really is a believer, don't go down the road of giving yourself over to iniquity. In fact, let's talk about being slaves of sin by turning to John chapter 8. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 8, verses 34 through 41. John 8, 34-41, and I want you to see how Jesus had to rebuke the contemporary Jews in his day as being slaves to sin, and the only way out of that slavery is by faith in Jesus in which you become an adopted son or daughter. Your sins are forgiven, and then the Spirit resides within you, and it enables you to start loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. John eight thirty four. it says, Jesus answered them. Again, these are the Jews, his own compatriots, as it were, being Israelites. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Stop there for just a moment. I think the idea of committing sin is the idea of habitually. They are dedicated to sin. Okay, but notice he goes on to say, the slave, this is verse 35, does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So stop there. Notice the distinction between the slave and the son. Those who are slaves to sin will never remain in the father's house. But the son, and implied, of course, in that is the daughter as well, they will remain forever. So this is one of the reasons why, if we're careful in our theology, we will recognize that, yes, every human being is made in the image of God, deserves protection by government. In fact, we know from Genesis 9-6, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. That's the institution of capital punishment. It's reiterated in Romans 13, uh, verses 1-4, through 4, where the government does not bear the sword in vain. So, you and I believe the role of government is to restrain evil. As the Marxists take over, they invert that and they say, no, the role of government is to redistribute wealth. So it's, it's one of the two R's. Are you going to restrain evil or are you going to redistribute wealth? Okay, so isn't it interesting as the left takes over, no longer do they like capital punishment because the role of government isn't to restrain evil. People are basically good. That's the view of the humanists. And therefore the role of government changes. But that's not the biblical mandate human beings made in the image of God need to be protected. However, as we say all human beings are made in the image of God, that does not mean that all human beings are sons and daughters, or as people often say, children of God. How many times do you watch something in the the media, and they'll say, well, everyone's a child of God. Well, that's not the biblical definition. What Jesus is giving you, in John 8 35, is the biblical definition that those who belong to Christ by faith are adopted sons and daughters, and it's only those who will remain in the house forever. Yes, Eric,
1: um, it's kind of interesting too because you know the Apostle Paul talks about a bond. I think it's. A, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, yeah. I can a, hear you. Um, We talk about, and I like to think of that we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Jesus Christ. But yet at the same time, we are sons and daughters of God. It's kind of an interesting, it's kind of a... they're both true, you know. Yes, <laughs> but, amen. But uh, in this world, I think we're either a slave to sin or we are a slave or a bond slave to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet amen. we're children of God, so we're sons and daughters. It's You see yes. what I mean? It's kind of an interesting
0: Amen. Thing. Exactly right, Eric. And you're not right or, excuse me, not wrong in either way. It's just that uh, here Jesus is accentuating the sonship But you're absolutely right. Believers are the doulos of Christ, the slave of Christ, and absolutely. So we're either going to be slaves to sin or slaves of Christ. And yes, and here the idea of the son or daughter is, of course, the one who remains in the house. The hired hand may be there for a time or the slave, but they don't belong in the house as the son or daughter. And so that's the idea. But notice the reaction of the Jews that Jesus is talking to. Let's go back to John 836, Jesus is continuing here. He says, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So stop there. The only way out of the slavery to sin is by coming to the Son. If you come to the Son by faith, you're no longer a slave to sin. What does that look like in Proverbs? Well, in Proverbs, if you're really a believer, the idea is you're not going to be captured by your iniquities. The idea is that you recognize your sin if you're engaged in it, you turn from it, and you get onto the path of salvation. You learn wisdom from your Father. You learn wisdom from the Word of God. You realize, this is going to lead to my destruction. And so even if you should stumble, you don't stumble to perdition. Think about the difference, the analogy I like to make is, think of the road to salvation, and you have a road to perdition. Remember, Jesus talks about the narrow path of salvation, the wide path that leads to destruction, on the wide path going to destruction, think about the rebel who sins against God. When they fall into that mud puddle of sin, they pitch their tent, they take out the suntan lotion, and they bask in it. But if we fall into the mud puddle of sin on the road to salvation, we can't stand it. We've got to get out of it. We, we say, I can't, I can't tolerate this. This is not tolerable in my life. Why? Because the third person, the Trinity, dwells within us, the Holy Spirit. And because he brings to remembrance all that Christ has said, we know, hey, I can't live like that. Because we have minds that have been transformed by the scriptures, as we're called to in Romans 12 too. no longer do we live for those things. We have to turn from them. That's the idea. And so that's how we leave slavery. Notice here in verse 37, he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, he says, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now stop there, who is their father? Yeah, that's right, the devil, right? He says, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Again, the devil. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So one of the boasts of the Jews is that they boasted in being sons and daughters of Abraham. Why? Because of their physical lineage. How do you actually become a son and daughter of Abraham or of God by being born again. Uh, Bob often says, if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once. That's exactly right. That's exactly what the scriptures are teaching. And so in John chapter 8, realize even those who were genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they did not flee to Christ by faith, they are regarded as slaves to sin. So the only way and not being captured and held with the cords of our sin is by fleeing to Christ. That's something that we should see in the New Testament as we approach it looking at the book of Proverbs as the background. Again, Proverbs says that giving into adultery will make you a slave to sin. That's the whole implication of Proverbs 5:20 20 through 23. What does Jesus say to that? The slave doesn't remain in the house. But the Son does forever. Let's be sons and daughters of the Most High. Now, I want to come to the New Testament. And one thing I want to do is I want to talk about how the New Testament explains our sexual purity and why it's so important before the Lord. And one of the reasons why we should be faithful here and now in the body is because the whole person belongs to Christ. When you and I were purchased by the blood of Christ and redeemed from our sin purchased back, it was our whole person, both our body and our soul. Um, I am what's called a dichotomist. I do believe that the human being is comprised of both the material portion, the body, and that of the immaterial portion, the soul. So, for example, in Second Corinthians 5, 8, Paul will say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when we die, there's a separation of the material and the immaterial, the body goes into the ground. The soul, the immaterial portion of us, goes to be with the Lord awaiting resurrection. But we really do have conscious existence with the Lord in the new Jerusalem. Okay, that's the heavenly city or nor is paradise. Okay, now what happens at the resurrection then is that those t- the immaterial and the material are put back together. The idea, though, is that Christ owns it all. So one of the views that they had at Corinth was that what was spiritual is what mattered, and the body didn't matter at all. And I believe there was an incipient form of Gnosticism brewing already in the first century. Full-blown Gnosticism did not come about until the second century, but I think many of the ideas that informed it were already alive in the first century. So let me just review what those ideas were. What the Gnostics believed is that there was a spiritual being who created all things, but there was a lesser, what they called a demiurge, who created everything that was physical. And so there was a radical battle between that which is physical and that which was spiritual. Anything physical was bad, everything spiritual was good. And you see the incipient forms of that, I think, even at Corinth. Not that they had a full blown Gnosticism, but you already see this divide between the body and spiritual. Let me give you some examples. Uh, the Corinthians boasted in being spiritual. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14.37. 1 Corinthians
2: 14.37.
0: Oh, we're having problems with our sound. I'm sorry, the sound is a little weak, so... We think we may have found the... There we go. Good job, Bob.
2: That's,
0: That's good. Good for... Excellent work. Bob's not only a theologian, he's a sound man too, so that's pretty good. <laughs> no, it's really good. Alright, so 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty seven. Notice here this is one example. Paul says if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Notice the idea that they regarded themselves as prophets and spiritual. I think these were boasts that the Corinthians had. They boasted in being spiritual to the point that in 1 Corinthians 3.1, the Apostle Paul ironically has to say to them that he could not speak to them as spiritual men, but as men in the flesh. Bob has pointed out that that is irony. Yes, indeed, they really are spiritual in the sense of being believers, but they were acting like those who are merely in the flesh. The boasting and being spiritual is connected to the rejection by the Corinthians of the body. The body isn't important. And this, I think, explains why gender distinctions to them are unimportant. Why is there a need for head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11? I think the issue is that you have many in the congregation at Corinth that say, the distinctions between the sexes doesn't matter now. Why? Because we're spiritual. And so, all of a sudden, the apostle Paul is to say, well, wait a minute. No, there are distinctions between men and women, and that's why he breaks up head coverings. Head coverings are not something I don't think that every church has to do today. The issue back then was the denial by the Corinthians of the distinction between the sexes. Now, why is this important today? Well, because... There's a lot of denial that there are distinctions between the sexes today. That same thing was happening for a different reason in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 11, the whole idea of having a head covering was to acknowledge that there really is a distinction between men and women. And yes, there is an order between men and women in God's creation, and it has to be maintained. That's what that's about. Now, turn your Bibles to see more distinctions between the body and why they thought the body wasn't important. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 13, you'll see that they didn't believe the resurrection was physical. And again, what's interesting is I think that this is probably the argument of Hymenaeus and Philetus at Ephesus. Why? Because they believed the resurrection had already occurred. Remember that? Well, how can you believe the resurrection has already occurred? After all, you know, Aunt Gertrude is still in the grave. Well, they could get away with saying it because they said it's spiritual. I think the same thing was going on in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice 12 through 13. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. The categorical denial by some of those at Corinth was that there is no such thing categorically as a resurrection of the dead. What does the Apostle Paul do? He brings up an example of a resurrection, namely Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. So if you have a resurrection, you can't have non-resurrection at the same time in the same relationship. Notice, Paul is using logic, right? He's using the law of non-contradiction. And so the postmodern generation, they want to get rid of that, but it's inherent to the scriptures. Okay, So yes, of course there is a resurrection. The body is important. That's the idea here. And so as we pick it up in 1 Corinthians 6, Bob did an excellent job in teaching us through this. Notice I think they're arguing, this is their slogan of the Corinthians, as Bob pointed out. He says, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. And so that's the Corinthians' way of saying that the physical body doesn't really matter. Whether we eat food dedicated to idols or have physical relations with temple prostitutes, that doesn't matter because what we do in the body doesn't matter. That's the argument. And so the reason I'm conveying that with sexual purity is because that's what Paul is going to address here as well. He just got done in 1 Corinthians 5 talking about the immoral man that had his own father's wife to be his own, and yet the Corinthians didn't rebuke the man or do church discipline with him. Well, here he's seeing the connection between if you're going to be willing to give your body over to temple prostitutes, it's really the same as those who are willing to feast with the idol. Yes, they partake in both the Lord's Supper in the body, but they take part of the supper with the demon as well. Why? Why did they think they could do it? Because what they did in the body didn't matter. Paul says, no, it does matter. It matters unto eternity. Uh, remember Bob taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where every single person is going to be judged, and it's gonna, they're going to be judged according to how they built upon the foundation, namely the gospel. In some, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, their works are burned up, yet they themselves are saved. So the deeds that they did in the body... Because they weren't in keeping with the foundation of the gospel, they were burned up and they suffered great loss. Okay, so what's the point? What we do now matters unto eternity. Even for reward for the believer, yes, the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, your sins, past, present, and future were washed away. You were guaranteed a spot in heaven, as it were. But what you do now also matters regarding your eternal reward. And so that's what the Scriptures teach. So today you have almost this idea that what we do now doesn't matter. You'll hear that even from certain commentators. I heard a commentator recently, someone that we all probably appreciate politically, who said, well, what you do as far as your job doesn't matter. That's not a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is expressed well in Colossians chapter 3... Verse 23, where Paul says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man. Why? Because what we do now in the body matters forever. And that's Paul's point here. Notice he corrects them. He says, Yet the body is not for pornea. Literally is the term for immorality. You can hear the root for pornography there. He says, But what? But for the Lord... And the Lord is for the body. So notice what he does. He takes their statement, their slogan, where they say it doesn't matter what happens in the body, and he turns it on its head. He says, oh, yes, it does. Why? Because the body belongs to the Lord. The Lord didn't just purchase your soul. He purchased body and soul. So let's quit being hyper-spiritual, Paul is saying, and saying, well, your body can remain with the demons in the world, because only your soul, that which is spiritual, matters. No, it's the whole package. It's the whole package. Christ owns it all. That's the idea. And the proof of that is found in verse 14. Notice Paul says, Now God has not, raised, has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Okay? So, again, our bodies, the ideas, belong to Christ, not a prostitute or any other sexual deviance for that matter. That's the idea. And then he goes on to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. It's abhorrent. So, brothers and sisters, the point is that we learn a biblical worldview is that the whole person belongs to Christ. He didn't just purchase your soul. He owned your body. Therefore, what you do in the body now matters. And it matters not just here and now. It matters unto eternity. We are the people when we... Let's just relate this to work. Let's get just away from the idea of sexual immorality for just a moment. What we do at work matters unto eternity. It's not that what we do at work doesn't matter. That's a pagan worldview. What we do in the body... Matters forever. And that's why you can have a godly man or woman have a, a job that they, in some sense, would despise normally, but because they're godly, they do it all for Christ. That's the biblical worldview. And so let's relate it now to sexual morality. If you and I are going to be pure before Christ, say, yes, my whole being belongs to him, he purchased it all, then we're going to be faithful to our spouses. That's the idea, and that's the wisdom that, again, Solomon was conveying to his son. Now, the next thing I want to show you in the New Testament is that we are to regard ourselves as dead to immorality, and that's one of the images of baptism. Baptism doesn't make you dead to immorality. It is a symbol of you being dead to it the moment you trusted in Jesus. Okay, so let's look at some passages, and at the end of this slide, I'll talk about baptism. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, Paul says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now, first of all, I want you to notice here in red that sexual immorality, again we have pornea, shouldn't even be named among the saints, why? It's something that we're dead to. That's part of the old life. But when we came to be united with Christ in faith, he purchased us our whole being, body and soul, and therefore it's not even to be named among us. It is not... Uh, you ever hear that saying in the military? Um, what is it? Not in keeping with an officer and a gentleman or unbecoming an officer and a gentleman? That's the idea of sexual immorality. It's unbecoming the son or daughter of Christ adopted son or daughter of God belonging to Christ. That's the idea that he's conveying. Notice here, I added this coarse jesting in black. The coarse jesting does not say that you can't have a sense of humor. And I want to mention that because we ran into an issue some years ago as a church where because a man was uh, telling a joke, someone accused him of violating Ephesians 5.4. And the idea is that you can't have any sense of humor. No What's being prohibited here is not any form of humor but coarse jesting which would be in keeping with lewd uh, sexual innuendo uh, type of things like that. Uh, Sexually immoral type of joking. That's what's being prohibited. Now the reason I'm saying that again is we end up having to do church discipline with someone who would not allow this to go and kept accusing falsely someone in our church of sinning. And time and time again, way to say, no, it doesn't mean you can't have a sense of humor at all. It means you can't engage in sexual immorality in your joking, lewd, lewd comments, those sorts of things. Okay, so that's why I'm, I'm pointing that out. But again, the big picture of Ephesians 5 is that we are dead to sexual immorality. Now, what's the remedy to being dead? I'm sorry, uh, what's the remedy to sexual immorality, but being faithful to our spouses. I want to turn to that now in Ephesians 5. Turn to Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. So we're going to go from the negative, as it were, to the positive. How should we live? And I want you to glean two things about the relationship between the wife and the husband. And many of you have been married for years. You can attest to this, that this is wisdom. And what I want you to see, again, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, is the wife is called to respect her husband, the husband is called to love his wife. Now, does that mean the husband isn't to respect his wife and the wife isn't to love her husband? No. But I think there's a reason why Paul accentuates the wife having to respect her husband and to submit and the, the husband really loving his wife as his own body. Listen to the wisdom. Ephesians 5, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Notice verse 24. He says, But as the church is subject... Now, let's stop there. The term subject there, tasso," literally means to be governed by, to be under, to submit to, that sort of idea... The church, he says, is to be governed, therefore, by Christ. He says, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, stop there for just a moment. One of the issues that I think was going on at Ephesus is you had false teachers that were teaching the forbidding of marriage. Remember that? Which Paul called a doctrine of demons. They were also saying that the resurrection had already occurred, Him and and Philetus. And I think these things were probably connected. I think these men were using the spiritual age. It doesn't matter what you do in your body. And it doesn't matter if you have these bonds of marriage. I think they were using it to make a move on women. I think that that was the issue. And so that's why Paul has to say, be subject to your own husbands, right, in everything. Not these false teachers, but your husbands. Okay, that's part. Now notice verse 25. Husbands, he says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that's the idea of love right there. What does it mean to agapao, which is the term? You heard agape, that's the noun. Agapao is the verb. What does it mean to love your wife in that way? Notice at the end of verse 25 that you'd give your life up for her. And again, it doesn't mean just always the dire circumstance where you throw yourself on a grenade or something for her. Um, that may... Uh, well be the case at some point but the point is is hopefully not the idea is that though you lay your life down for her in your daily life that's the idea that you would love her in that way okay so what does it mean to love my wife well it means that I give my life up for her and men need to hear that I remember some years ago we were at a bible study I'll never forget this and I will not mention names. Um, in fact, I really enjoyed this one fellow. But I remember this wife. She had a complaint apparently with her husband, and she made a snide remark. She said, "Well, the reason we get along so much is because we're both in love with the same man." And I thought, "Oh boy, I probably could hear that from my wife too a time or two, right?" But that was a that was a remark that I think was getting at this text. That if we really love. We love our wives to the point where we're willing to lay our lives down for her. That's the idea that Paul is conveying. Yes,
1: Eric. Actually, this just... What I'm saying here just adds to it. You know, when we do evangelism, we run into all kinds of things, and you have to be able to kind of handle some of these stereotypes. You know, you, you guys all know the stereotype. You know that oh, you Christians, you just want to dominate your wives, and you always want to just quote that. But, but it's the verse 21 just before it. Yes. Be subject to one another. There you go. In fear of the Lord, uh, in the fear Amen. of Christ. So, it, and then Paul is just expounding on that. You know, we're we're to be subject to one another. We all know that, but I just, just to really emphasize that.
0: Yes, well said. And you know, what's interesting is you read verse 21. That is the relationship of brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, there's no Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female nor slave nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus. But yes, what does it look like then in the marriage union? And then he flushes that out. And the idea is that women are prone to say, I don't think I'm going to be subject to this joker. And we, as the joker, are subject to only love ourselves and not our wives. I think he's addressing the sin nature right away. He's not beating around the bush. So if you want a marriage that works, the Apostle Paul is saying, women, you be subject to your husbands, but husbands, you love her to the point where you're willing to give up your life for her. Then it's easy for her to be subject to you, and things go swimmingly, as they say, right? Uh, yes, Paul. Um Okay, uh, my
3: question stems back to slide five, uh, verse twenty-two of five proverbs. Yes, uh, I believe that's the correct. Yeah. Yes. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. Yes. Uh, of course, I agree with everything you said. No question about that. But um, the idea is that the wicked is so attractive that you want to bite into it, but that which you bite into is going to poison you. Exactly. Yes. Right. Now, exactly. now, now skip over to. Uh, uh, slide 7, where it says Ephesians five three four, 4, but uh, immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. What I'm thinking of, it's going to be interesting. Um, we're all behind, we're all surrounded by sin, the condition of sin. And so we're not supposed to, uh, I just need a clarification here. Uh, are we not supposed to be... Enjoying our life a little bit, anything because things look attractive, you know. And uh, wow, that looks attractive. That doesn't mean I gotta own it. It just looks attractive. But um, I, I'm kind of interested in the. Uh, I mean, we're still. I don't know. I'm, what do we do with sin? Because we are sinners. We're in yes. a condition of sin, and yet we don't want to be dominated by it.
0: Yeah. No. Good. Good question. I, I think what it looks like is that we recognize it in our lives. And we repent and turn from it. I Remember in 1 John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, there's, in some sense, there's a once and for all repentance where we're turning from unbelief and we're turning to Christ in faith. And that's true, but that doesn't mean that we as believers don't live a life of repentance where we're turning from sin. Why? Because we belong to the one who purchased us. And so that's the way I would view this, is that there's going to be times where I'll be convicted to say, you know what, I think, I'm, I think I'm going astray here. We need to turn from that. That's the wisdom that comes from the scriptures. And so we can't make a caveat in our own lives, a, a cutout, a carve-out, as it were, where we're saying, I'm going to hold on to this pet sin, and that's going to be with me, okay? Especially in the area of sexual immorality. I'm just going to kind of hold on to that one. And I'm just going to keep progressing towards the kingdom. No, what we see is that we become slaves to it. And so it can't even be named among us. So we can't be those who beat around the edges of sin and say, well, I do a little bit, only on the weekend, or what have you. No, it's something that we have to kill. We are dead to it. Um, Just as, think of baptism, and I'm going to come to baptism in just a moment, but let's use the analogy of Noah's family. If Noah's family wanted to go back to the old world, prior to the deluge, they could not. I see. You know, I kind of like when you know those, you know, all those sinners over there. They they were bad, but they kind of did some neat things. And I kind of missed that. Could they go back to that? No, it was washed away. That's one of the images of baptism. The moment you believed, the old world was washed away. So we're dead to it, and that's why it can't even be named among us. Why? Because The idea of being holy means to be separated. Hagios, that we are separated unto God. He is different than the rest of the world in moral purity, in his um, incommunicable attributes. He is holy. He is unique in that way. You and I are to be holy that is separated from the world by belonging to him. And so if we belong to him, we can't belong to the sins that we used to enjoy. That's the idea. And so there's thousands of different ways of filling that in and different things that we can fall into. But does that make sense? Does that help flush that out a little bit? Yeah. Good. Thanks, Paul. Excellent question, though, and I'm glad you have And good comment, too, uh, prior to that. Yes, Bob.
2: Uh, it's driving me nuts so as a verse, because I, I can't remember the reference. Yeah. Uh, promising them liberty while they themselves are... Slaves of Corruption. Yes. Where's yeah. that verse? I don't have my computer. Yeah, does anybody have off.
0: that one? I think it's 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, there we two go. 2 Peter 3, very good. Thank yes. you. The false teachers, right? She can get you any worse. She's good our concordance.
2: Her. The human com- mm. the concordance. Go ahead and read yes. it. It's close. Actually- oh. Very close. Um, the other thing that goes along with this while she's looking that up. Yeah. Binding and loosing is essential. Yes. Can you explain that to us, Bob? Well, binding and loosing under the covenant has to be grounded in biblical exegesis. Amen. To be bound means to be under obligation. To be loosed is to be free. And that went on within rabbinic Judaism. They're debating what was or wasn't sin. Yes. So if you can't define sin then you don't know what you're trying to get free from. And if you loose what God uh, bound, become a libertine, and you're promising freedom, but it's actually corruption. That's what's going on in our culture. Yes, They're allowing freedom in what the Bible defines to be sin. And the Bible says, what are those who call good, evil, and evil good? That's in Isaiah. So if you can't do the binding and loosing, then you don't know what you're trying to be delivered from. Well said, yes. And repentance becomes meaningless. If good is evil, evil is good. What exactly do you repent from? Right. And so we have people repenting from being normal in order to embrace evil. Mm. And the Bible calls that bondage, not freedom. So. What's the passage?
4: Uh, 2 Peter 2.19, they promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him.
0: Wow. Uh, Barb, could you read down around verse 23 and 24 where he cites the proverb? Um, Of them the proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. That's important because it shows they were never genuine believers. Going back to the mire as a pig, they were always pigs. They never were believers. So these aren't people who were believers and left the way. These are people who were never on the narrow way. They were always unbelievers. And so they are themselves slaves to sin. Absolutely well said. By the way, as Bob was mentioning, and I'm sorry, Luann, I'll come right to you. I was going to mention Bob is talking about binding and loosing, and he's absolutely right. Look at this uh, text right here, coarse jesting. We had an example of someone in our own body that said that you can't tell a joke. And so what was he doing? He was falsely binding the whole congregation to something that's not sinful under the new covenant. So how do we know that this coarse jesting is more than likely a reference to jokes that have to do with sexual innuendo. Well, the term actually has to do with that, but notice the connection to pornea, immorality. So again, what's being forbidden here is not having a sense of humor, any form of joke, but coarse jesting in connection with pornea, sexual immorality. Now, what Bob is just mentioning is now today you have people in the culture who are saying, well, we can engage in pornea, Again, what let's define pornea. Pornea is anything outside of sexual relations between one man, one woman in the confines of marriage. There you go. What's pornea? Anything outside of the union of one man, one woman the confines of marriage. So, LGBTQ+, they can add as many acronyms as they want. It's all pornea. It's all pornea. So, isn't it interesting? They're loosing us to where we were we're actually bound. But here we had someone in our own ranks trying to bind us to where we were loosed. And as Bob is showing us, the way we know the distinctions is we have to do exegesis, determining what the text of Scripture is actually saying. That's what we have to do, binding and loosing from Matthew 18. And we'll come to that text in our studies in Matthew 18. Yes, I'm sorry, Luann, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I was just kind of thinking of what Paul was saying to expand or, you know, to kind of yes. have an example. But, you know, we look at the internet, social media, and, you know, there's wonderful things. I mean, you know, like Greg figured out how to get a boat motor going because he looked it up online, you know, yeah. and that's a, <laughs> and that's, go, a yeah. that's a good tool. Yes. But we also know how much of it is um, attributed to pornography and sexual yes. exploitation. Or even, you know, where we neglect family because we're on social media, you know, and each person, you know, so it's not that the internet itself is bad, but what we're doing with it and as Christians, you know, controlling and knowing when we are crossing the line? When am I, you know, um, neglecting family or relationships because I'm on social media or on inappropriate social media, et cetera? Yes. You know? Does, well you know said. I mean? No, it's great
0: wisdom, Luann. Very good. And it gets back to what Bob was just mentioning, binding and loosing. Am I bound not to try to fix my boat motor? <laughs> nope. I can use the internet for that. But am I bound, under the terms of the New Covenant, meaning Jesus Christ is Lord, not to look at pictures that are inappropriate or what have you, uh, yes, I'm morally bound not to engage in that. So absolutely well said. Yes, uh, Brian. There was a
5: guy by the name of Overton who coined the phrase the Overton window, Mm. and uh, that 's when something that is repugnant, say, to society slowly starts moving and becomes more and more acceptable for example, this stuff we see with the uh, transgenders and yes. all this like that like twenty five years ago. Almost everybody would have said that. That's just crazy talk. And then all of a sudden, that's like policy. Okay? So things slowly. Are normalized, if you will, and yes. that kind of goes in I believe with what we 're talking about where good is evil and evil is good yes. what what uh, what was repugnant is now acceptable, and that happens Amen. with uh, across the board you you see that with everything we were talking with Larry and Eve this morning, how they are you know you have uh, people that believe in this uh, 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 millennial not yes the millennialism and they it's not getting better you keep seeing the overton window keeps
0: moving moving getting worse worse and worse right well said yeah post millennialism is post-millennialism is the idea that things are going to be better and we're going to christianize the planet then christ takes the reins what you're saying is things are getting worse and worse And absolutely, and that's what Jesus teaches in the 70th week of Daniel, things will get worse. Um, I was thinking about uh, Jesus' words in his high priestly prayers, he intercedes for us in John 17, I think it's verse 15, where he says, Lord, do not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And that's the issue is we are in the world where there are such things as the internet. We use them to fix boat motors, not to pick up people other than our spouse. We go to college we have to have jobs, but we don't become like the world. In fact, the world sees in us the true revolutionary who Christ is. That if you come to him by faith, you'll have the forgiveness, you'll no longer be slaves of sin. You'll live as a true revolutionary where you're gonna live for the power of God and a king and a kingdom that's coming. One that can't be yet seen, but that one is being imperceptibly built. Every moment that you live, more people are being added. To the coming kingdom. But that kingdom isn't yet. And so it's, it's a difficult thing because the king and the kingdom isn't visible yet. So you and I are living for something that can't be seen. The world is living for that which is seen and that only. So that's why in Romans 8, remember, we're to live what? By faith, not by sight. The world and its love for parnea and impurity and greed and all those things, they're living for sight rather than by faith. And what we mean by faith is not that we live lives as Christians that it's absent of evidence. No, all of our evidence that we need is found in the Scripture. So we have lots of evidence. The evidence is in the Scripture, and because we believe the Scripture, we live by faith, not by sight. That's the idea. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me keep reading this Ephesians 5, and we'll get through this text here. And again, just two big takeaways on how to love our wives and our husbands here. Husbands, again, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love your own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Stop there in verse 28. Remember, what was God's design in marriage? Genesis 2.24, a f- man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, they become one flesh. Jesus adds to that, therefore what God has put together, let no man tear apart. You often hear that at weddings. I've given many a weddings. I have it memorized. right? That's from Matthew 19. Well, think about Genesis 2.24. They become one flesh. That's the idea. And so if you hate your wife, you hate yourself. That's Paul's point. If you really love yourself, you have to love your wife. Why? Because you're one flesh. That's the unity that he's calling for. Now, he says, "...for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." Verse 30, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, now he cites Genesis 2.24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the coup de grace, or as my brother says, the coup de grassy. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with a reference to Christ and the church. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. This mystery is great. What mystery? Well, A mystery typically has to do with something that was formerly concealed, but now has been revealed by, in this case, the apostle. And I think the imagery here is that ever since Genesis 2.24, every time a man and a woman become one, it's been a type of a union between Christ and his church. The ultimate bride and the ultimate bridegroom. So every time there's a marriage, it's signifying something. That there's a union between the Messiah and his people. Um, I had the opportunity of sitting under a Dr. Ardell Kennedy when I was at Northwestern. He taught us uh, exegesis in Greek through the book of Ephesians. He actually himself wrote a commentary on Ephesians. I'll never forget he pointed out that oftentimes in scriptures you'll see analogies that are used. And let me explain what I mean by this. Think about there's three different usages of language that we could look for to know God. There's something called the univocal usage of language, meaning there's a one-to-one correspondence between the word and our understanding. In other words, in, us, in order for us to have that kind of usage of language, we would have to know a heavenly language as if, as if God directly speaks to us in that way. The opposite or the postmodern view Is the equivocal use of language. Where God says something and we can never understand it, we're always in equivocation. That's the postmodern angst. You can never know what God's word is saying. Why? Because all language is equivocation. We as evangelicals aren't saying we have a univocal, one to one relationship as if we speak the very heavenly language, but we're also not saying that there's an equivocation. What we're saying is we have an analogical usage of language whereby God condescends himself to speak to us in ways that we can understand. So, for example, when he says he measures the universe by the span of his hand, we know he literally does not have a hand. Of course, Christ does. But we're talking about God as spirit. He doesn't literally have a hand, but we understand the point that he's the one who created all things. Uh, When it says that God is all-powerful, we know something of power. Why? Because we see one car is more powerful than another car. One army is more powerful than another army. When it says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our being, we know something of love. Why? Because your parent loved you. Or you loved your son or daughter. And when they were hurting, you went down and you, 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 you put the little band-aid on the knee. Or they did that to you. So you know something of love. And so the point is, when you, when you... Let me give you another one. You lay down at night. Why do you sleep? It's a design. That's what Ardell Kennedy would say to you. It's a design that you reenact the resurrection every night. You go down in the darkness, and you come up to the newness of the new day. So day after day of your life, you're reenacting the future resurrection. If, in fact, Paul is saying this very thing, that every time there's a marriage... The union of one man and one woman, it is a type of the great union between the greatest groom ever and the bride. How dare we break up that typology by cheating on our spouse? Let's not be the ones who break the typology. Let's be the ones who say, this is what it looks like. Faithful spouses, faithful bride, faithful groom. That's the idea. I'm sorry, Bob, you had something. Well, I was
2: just going to say, when I was researching the the book about the emergent... Yes. ...they attack what you're saying by claiming that the analogical is just a smokescreen for more equivocation. Yes. That the analogies can mean all sorts of different things, and the reader determines the meaning. That's right. But the answer to that is God chose the analogy. Amen. Okay, so you have to go back to the inspiration of Scripture that it's God breathed, that God spoke. He he chooses the analogy and imparts the meaning through words that we can understand. Amen. So rather than the little engine that couldn't, (laughs) I can't, I can't, I can't, (laughs) we can know and understand the Bible. And then They create another mountain, say, well, nobody can know all the truth, and you're making absurd claims that you know everything. So if there's anything we can know, then they throw their hands up, say it's impossible. Right. And then they go into this realm of the spirits, which is the quagmire of deception. That's right. So don't let anybody do that to you. The analogy... Is determined by oh the God. author that's right the meaning of the analogy is determined by the
0: author God inspired the scripture amen. and go back and just believe that and use it amen well said um, when I was running into this post-modernity Bob came alongside and helped me see the follies of the postmodern way and I'll never forget one of the verses Bob shared with me It was at Northwestern it was John twelve forty eight, where Jesus says this is that which will judge you on the last day the very words that I have spoken will be your judge So the question to the emerging church was, if that's true, the emerging church in the postmodern world says you can't know what this says. But Jesus says you're going to be held into account by that word. Well, they both can't be true at the same time in the same relationship. 1 John 5.13, John the Apostle says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. The emerging church in the postmodern world says you can't know. The Bible says you can I'm going with the Bible. I am post-postmodern. That's what we're going to do, right? Amen. So, brothers and sisters, my whole point in leaving you with this idea of Genesis 2.24, one man, one woman, that's the idea that God has for a picture of Christ in the church. And so I just want to appeal to all of us to be faithful to our spouses because what? It's a typology. It's a typology of the great faithfulness that Christ has for his people, ought not to be broken. And I think that may be one of the implications here out of Ephesians chapter 5. Um, let me um, leave off. We've got just a minute here or two. I'm struggling to see my screen. If I would just put my glasses on, I'm having to go back like this. Um, let me just fast forward a little bit. I want to show you what happens to those in Babylon. Revelation 21.8 8. This is in the New Jerusalem. It says, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice the immoral person, the term that's used there, pornos. Again, is where we get a term for pornography. What is the future for those who are given over to sexual impurity? They have the second death. It's an implication that they were never born twice. They're only born once. Um, What's very interesting is notice the reference here to the cowardly and the unbelieving. Notice the unbelieving are going to be in the second death. They'll never be in the new Jerusalem ever. This is one of the proofs, by the way. Let me just leave you with this little freebie. This is proof of the millennial kingdom. Why? Turn your Bibles real quickly to Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 17. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 17. Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. Remember, this is the final battle surrounding Jerusalem. And there will be some survivors of the nations who went up against Jerusalem. It says, then it will come about, this is Zechariah 14, 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up year to year to worship the Lord, the king of Jerusalem the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts will send no rain on them. Well, let's ask ourselves the question. This cannot be happening, right, in the eternal states. Revelation 21 to 22 is about the eternal states. New Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. Right, well, where are all unbelievers? Well, they're in the lake of fire. So are, is there going to be anyone that can be forced to go up to meet the Lord and worship Him in Jerusalem that are unbelievers? Well, no. Why? They're all in the lake of fire. That happens in Revelation 20. All in the lake of fire. Every one of them. So Zechariah 14 is depicting people who don't want to go up to meet the Lord and worship Him, but if they don't, He won't send rain upon their land. Does that sound like us as believers? Are we going to be have to coer- be coerced to go worship the Lord? Well, of course not. So let's ask ourselves the question. This isn't happening now. Right now during the church age, do we expect that all nations are going to be forced to go worship Jesus, the Messiah in Jerusalem? Well, of course not. But it can't happen in the eternal states, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Why? Because all the unbelievers are in the lake of fire. Very good point. So when in the world, if you don't have a future millennial kingdom, a reign of Christ upon the earth, when will this happen? Another reason why the millennial kingdom must take place, and it's there that we'll see fully Christ, the ultimate groom, be with the ultimate bride, his people, as he reigns upon the earth. Brothers and sisters, our marriage is a type of that. Let's be those who honor God and Christ through our marriages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us clarity as to what we're living for, that we're not living for here and now, and the mere fleeting pleasures and the sins that so easily entangle us, but we're ultimately living for you, the glories of your kingdom. I do pray for the perseverance of my brothers and sisters, that we would be those who please you with our lives. I pray for Bob and his sermon, Lord. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to be doers of the word. We pray for your blessings on him. We pray for our day together as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.